I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week, we're sharing one of our favorite episodes from January. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist, where we highlight the shows we think you should add to your podcast feed. And today we've got a great one for you. What do you get when you start a group chat between a pop culture podcaster, a poet, and a Tony Award-winning journalist? Well, you get the new show Vibe Check. Vibe Check is a news and culture podcast hosted by Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford. And every week, they catch up and make sense of what's making headlines. Sam Sanders is the former host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and he also hosts Vultures Into It. Saeed Jones is a writer and poet. He's the author of the award-winning memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives. And Zach Stafford is a journalist who, in 2022, won a Tony Award as one of the co-producers of A Strange Loop. Welcome, all of you. I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Hi. Thank you for having us. It's so good to be here. Each week on your show, you pick apart one big thing that's going on in the news and another in culture. And when I listen to the three of you, it really, you know, it does feel like hanging out with friends. I know everyone says that in every description of a podcast, but this one really does feel like that. So I'm curious, how well did you all know each other before coming together to make this podcast? Sam, you take the lead because you're the stalker. Yeah. (laughs) I literally willed these two into my life. Um, I think what I realized over the course of becoming really good friends with both Saeed and Zach and deciding to make this podcast with them, you know, all three of us have worked in industries that are predominantly white and predominantly straight. And often that means we're the only one of us in a room, the only black queer men in a room if we're there at all. And something about that dynamic primes you to want to feel competitive when someone else like you shows up. And so there was this silent kind of pressure to covet being the only one and to not perhaps be as friendly or as welcoming to other folks like me in the industry because primarily white institutions just breed that kind of insecurity. And I realized when I met both Zach and Zaid that I wanted these two in my life because like they understood my life in ways that none of my other peers could by virtue of our backgrounds. And so instead of like, you know, having that desire to compete with them, I only had a strong desire to become their friends and to learn from them. And I met Zach first through a mutual friend. And literally, as soon as I left his apartment from that first visit, I didn't just say to myself, I'm gonna be his best friend. I found an apartment two blocks down the street and lived in the same neighborhood as him for like oh, two wow. or three years because yep. <laughs> he was modeling this life that I really admired, you know? <laughs> and then when I found Saeed, I had him as a guest on my show and that was supposed to be it. But I secretly decided to kind of like stalk him and make him my friend, you know? And so this was, this was willful, you know, this was willful and, and it, it was almost revolutionary to say, all right, the three of us together, 
we're going to love each other, learn from each other, and model this version of, I think, really healthy friendship in the show. That's so beautiful. I was not expecting that both beautiful and slightly scary answer <laughs> of how you track them down I and sure meet them your friends. So there's there really is a, like lovely. a multiverse <laughs> dynamic where this is like um, single white female. We have to acknowledge that. <laughs> hey, yes. no shame. No shame. <laughs> so in Becoming Friends, you describe the show as this group chat come to life. And we all know that some things in the group chat need to stay private in the group chat. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, how do you all decide which conversations to pull from and bring to the show and which ones need to stay private? Oh, that's a great question. Ooh. Hmm. I mean, I think. In terms of deciding what should be a part of the podcast, I think it's a balance between do the three of us feel each of us has something to say? Like if we're really honest with ourselves, do we have something to offer? And then also, is there a need? Like I, I feel like part of the reason it really does feel that you're listening to Three Friends Connect is that we are. Like in real time, we're speaking from a position of confidence, yes, on the topics, but also, I don't know, I think there's often a deep need, you know? And so the topics that we're parsing, whether it's the, the implications of Colorado Springs or making sense of how we feel about, you know, whatever new movie is, you know, Wakanda Forever, um, it's because we're, we're actually trying to figure out in real time like how we feel, what we understand, what we're confused about. Um, and I think that's really honest. But I'm going to turn to Zach because Zach is the keeper of secrets. And I think I feel like <laughs> Zach is the one where we're like, can we talk about, are we, will the Illuminati get us? <laughs> <laughs> I will say Zach always has some secret Beyonce scoop where he's like, I can tell y'all, but we can't say it on the show. Oh. <laughs> Zach got real quiet. <laughs> He did. He did get quiet. I'm wondering how often that happens because I consider all three of you to be, you know, part of this like glitterati where you you are cultural critics, but you also probably know some of the people who are involved in these large scale projects. So how do you balance wanting to talk about Beyonce, but perhaps knowing Beyonce? Yeah, I mean, congratulations if you know Beyonce. Zach, Beyonce. Do you know That's Beyonce? Great. Zach, do you know Beyonce? Don't, don't know lie. Beyonce. Don't lie. <laughs> I have sat very close to Beyonce once, but we have never shaken hands. We have never met. I would love to meet her if she's listening. But no, I think you bring up a really good question. And for me, it goes back to the power of journalism, because when journalism is done right, it can reach everyone and everyone can participate. I think when we have issues that are really close to home and where our show does a really great job is that we talk about it. We don't try to hide it. If I'm friends with someone we're talking about, it's my duty journalistically to show my own bias and to use that bias or that subjectivity or that point of view as a place to really dig in and have a real conversation. I think people get in trouble with trying to hide the truth and instead we use it as like a playground to learn about each other and talk about things. And it does come up and we we set boundaries. Of course, we're not going to share things that are set in confidence about anything, but we really choose vulnerability in really radical ways that I hope our colleagues are taking note of because we all grew up in newsrooms. Being an editor-in-chief of a queer magazine, I learned really fast that my subjectivity is 
you know, one, always present in everything that I do, and two, should be part of the conversation. Me being a black gay man writing about Donald Trump should be a really interesting way of talking about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be punished for that. And I think our show is trying to model that subjectivity, that having an opinion isn't bad, but it should be really thoughtful and informed. And we do so much homework. I think Sam Sanders is the best at this. At like when we decide a topic, we all spend that evening going deep and not only reading about it, but making sure we're getting the right sources and the right people. And, and if there's something we ourselves aren't ready to talk about, we we quote someone else and make sure they're a reliable source. So I do think our show, while it is an opinion show, is a good practice of journalism, uh, at least transparent journalism. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think what we also bring to the table and where you can do it because there's just a spirit of like love and friendship in the show itself. We're able to say when things aren't good. I think there mm. is a lot of pressure in the culture in popular culture to kind of be a optimist to say everything is great right. because everything was made by somebody that you want to like. And we are not afraid to say, yeah, didn't like that movie. Didn't like that show. That song was weird. And we can do that whenever we want to, because like, we're not actually being mean. There's just a spirit of kindness in the show that allows us to say, you know, actually that Rihanna song from the new Black Panther movie, it's Awful. bad. Still love you, Rihanna. I get mad every Awful, time I think right? about it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it comes across as okay because like we're actually performing kindness and friendship in our show all the time. And I think the best conversations on the show come about when we actually disagree about a thing. There are a lot of things that I love that the other two guys don't and vice versa. And I like those moments because we model a constructive kind of debate around cultural issues. Like we're going to fight about it, but we're not really going to fight. Right. And I think it's good for folks to hear that these yeah. days. And also modeling um, discomfort, um, because you're right, I think feeling that you, because you're doing news and culture, like you have to cover everything, that's not sustainable, that's not how people live. I'm trying to think of an example. Um, the Netflix series on Jeffrey Dahmer just made me deeply uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's really unsettling. And so I appreciated the space that with Sam and Zach, we've been able to create on Vibe Check, like me being able to say, I don't really want to engage this. You know what I mean? Like not in a dismissive way, but a sincere, like it's unsettling. It makes me really sad. And I don't want to kind of be a part of this cultural trend. And when you're made to feel comfortable that you can say, I just, I can't go there. I think there's value. Yeah. And was that part of the the conversations you had when you were developing this show? How do you distinguish yourselves from the other pop culture podcasts that maybe do talk about everything? What did you want to do differently with Vibe Check? I think what I wanted most was just to really capture the energy and the spirit of our group chat. You know, we all did that thing where when we couldn't reach out to people and be around folks during the pandemic, the group chats became ascendant and vital. I was in so many, but something about the mix of this chat with these two, there was this wonderful mix of learning and humor and empathy and kindness, like all together. And so I wanted to make sure that we got that tone in the show. And then besides that, I just wanted us to like do our homework more than any other culture show. And so like Zach mentioned, mm -hmm. we just do the research and we do the readings. We're not going to come talk about any topic unless we've like sat down and read up on it, you know, and just doing that, I think it helps elevate it. And also we're really good at doing that. You know, Zach and Saeed have both worked in broadcast breaking news for a while. I was on the radio for a very long time, so we know how to do it. So I think 
that is the secret sauce. The energy of that group chat matched with three journalists who know how to be journalists. That for me is, is a special combo, but I want to hear what Zach and Zaya think about it as well. Yeah. And I just to add to that, I always come back to a word Saeed introduced to us in development, which was atmospheric. And I feel like we each week try to make news and culture um, kind of show you that atmospheric feeling you're feeling, like something's off in the world, or I'm really excited, and that all the products that we can look to, whether it's Trump having dinner with Kanye West or the success of the Wednesday show on Netflix. Like all of these things aren't happening in a vacuum. They all kind of touch and crash into each other and can be contextualized together. And so much of media is about verticalizing and kind of making each thing its own thing. But we're really interested in kind of showing this galaxy that you live in and showing why the stars sit where they sit. Um, and that may, and I think that helps people feel a little more empowered in this rolling news cycle that seems off the rails all over the place is that it all is kind of reacting, responding to everything around you. It's not just kind of coming out of nowhere. You can't find reason within the unreasonable. Yeah, I think as the poet of the group, it's perhaps not uh, <laughs> unusual for me to zero in on language. But I've noticed, um, you know, listening and re-listening to old episodes, it's rare that we make it through an episode without the word acknowledge coming up. You know, you'll hear one of us say, I want mm. to acknowledge, you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. And, and I've been thinking about like the function of that kind of rhetorical framework. And I think it's right, you know, so often... Just like as a person, you know, the media experience, let's say, of the last few years, it's just felt like people throwing things at you. <laughs> you know, it's 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 felt, mm -hmm. you know, all, at times downright disrespectful, you know, in, in the way that it can be overwhelming and just can kind of disregard that this we are human beings trying to process, you know, current events and media. And so I think I love that every episode, you know, there's almost always a beat where one of us says, you know, even if I don't feel this way on this particular topic, I want to to acknowledge that, you know, someone listening might be coming at this from a different position. And I just think that's really humane. And I think that's what you do when the conversation is both about how you feel as an individual, but also how you feel as a member of a community. And so is that the vibe check? Is the vibe check for you or is the vibe check for the audience at the top of each show? Oh, it's always for both. Mm -hmm. It's always for both. When I was covering news and breaking news and politics, my little life hack was to like try to convey a hard news story by using emotion. Mm -hmm. How can we get to this news through an emotional framework that taps into how the newsmakers feel, how the listeners feel, but like emotion is always like the key to unlock people to understanding. And so when we're doing that, when we're checking the vibe, we're not just setting the table for ourselves, we're doing it for our audience. I think that like part of what makes my favorite podcasts and my favorite podcasters accessible is hearing the ways in which they're fully human themselves. You know, I think of mm -hmm. the pop culture shows that I love the most, The Read, Las Culturistas, Who Weekly. I've come to know them as people by listening to them, right? Like they tell me enough of their lives where I feel like I'm in it with them and they feel like they're experiencing life kind of the same way that I am. And that means that whatever they say, it just resonates more. I think this idea of like the voice of God journalist, which we were taught at places like NPR and legacy newsrooms, that doesn't work anymore. And all three of us want to be fully human as, as we talk about those things to let our listeners know that like we're in it with them. So it is for them and for us, I think. Yeah. 
So let's share a clip from Vibe Check Now. You recorded this episode when the news broke, but now that it's happened, it's fun to look back at your predictions. In the fall of 2022, Rihanna announced that she would be performing at the Super Bowl halftime show. But she had an interesting relationship with the NFL up until this point. Let's take a listen. Here's Vibe Check. In 2019, Rihanna spoke publicly about turning down a previous invitation to perform at the Super Bowl, um, and she invoked Colin Kaepernick's protest and said, quote, I couldn't dare do that. For what? Who gains from that? Not my people. I just couldn't be a sellout. I couldn't be an enabler. There's things within that organization, she's referring to the NFL, mm -hmm. that I do not agree with at all, and I was not about to go and be of service to them in any way. So that's yeah. 2019. Woo, what changed in three years? That's what I'm really interested and excited about how she's going to engage with the politics of the Super Bowl because she's always been so critical of not just the Super Bowl, but the world at large and her political thoughts on it. And we know now that it's become incredibly common, whether you are J-Lo, Eminem, Beyonce, you have to make a statement or try to make a statement in some way. And Rihanna's really well poised to talk about a lot. She can talk about immigration. She can talk about mm -hmm. the queen dying. Barbados did recently push out the monarchy and British empire out of their country. Um, she can talk about, she can use this as a stage to be like, oh my God, you still haven't changed anything. Let me show you what you need to do. And she also could speak to like domestic violence, which has been a part of a conversation she's had with the NFL before about her own experiences and uh, how they deal with it. So there's a lot she can do. Yeah. And that's the thing that I'm really concerned about. Not concerned about, but I have questions about. Because it's like, obviously, Rihanna got over her beef with the NFL. But I think people forget how deep the beef was. Like, it wasn't just the Colin Kaepernick Right. Stuff. It goes back years before that. It goes back. So in 2014, the NFL was set to use her song called Run This Town in an NFL ad. But that same year, on the same time, a big NFL player got caught up in a domestic abuse scandal. And NFL leadership said, we don't think we should have this ad run with the Rihanna song because it will make folks think of abuse and think about that player's scandal. They pulled the ad, didn't use the song. Rihanna was furious. She tweeted about it and she called out the NFL. So there's been more than one instance of a major beef with the NFL. Yeah. And what I wonder in all of this is like, who had to apologize to who to get over all of that? And how big was a check to whoever to get over all of that? Yeah. If you had asked me to place a wager on who'd be most likely to do a halftime show at the Super Bowl, I would have had Rihanna at the bottom of yeah. the list because the beef goes back so far. And I think that may be the secret sauce here that we're going to see when the Super Bowl happens is that I see no way that Rihanna just ignores her long history, pushing against them, mm -hmm. shading Rock Nation and Jay-Z, all of these people all together. And also, she's so powerful. She got the NFL to change all their social media to say National Fenty League. So mm. she's like thinking of this holistically. And I have faith in Rihanna that she has a plan. You can call me wrong in February if I'm wrong, but I do think there's going to be some attempts to do some structural change because she's too rich to be paid off that easily. In my yeah, mind. we well, we have to talk about the Jay Z of it all. And of course, you know, Beyonce has done the Super Bowl halftime show twice. Last time she appeared, I mean, part of I think the pushback that you were alluding to where performers try to, within the context of the Super Bowl, you know, kind of assert themselves in their politics. In that case, it was the dance uniforms invoking the aesthetics of the Black Panthers. I think Rihanna, like other performers, will make some kind of gesture. I, here's what I think. 
I think both during the performance and hopefully also behind the scenes, the NFL, Jay-Z, all the powers that be that worked to persuade her to do this had to make a lot of overtures. And I'm sure that involves money. (laughs) I'm sure that involves money. The thing is with these institutions, and this is, you know, the thing with like Jay-Z, because Jay-Z's whole thing, right, when he came in during the kind of the height of the protest, you know, which galvanized around Colin Kaepernick, is like, I think his argument was he was going to come in and talk to these white men and kind of like push for change and everything like that. And I'm like... But that's not what happened. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the NFL is the symbol of patriarchy itself. And patriarchy is so good at co-opting, placating, appropriating, you know, direct challenges. And so I think Rihanna could get on there and the first image we see is a picture of the queen and then it burns up and then Mm -hmm. Rihanna is, you know, I mean, it could be something really direct and pointed. And I think even in the context of the NFL and the Super Bowl, it's kind of lessened. It's turned into, yeah, and it's not changed. It's still performative. I'm thinking about the last halftime show, Eminem took a knee in the halftime show. Nobody noticed. noticed. I think what happened with Jay-Z and the way that he began to play ball with the NFL after the protests began, after the Black Lives Matter movement, it looked like it might be structural change, but in actuality, it was just a check being cut to a very Mm -hmm. rich black man. What ended up happening is the NFL said... We're not going to change a lot of this stuff. We're not going to reinstate Colin Kaepernick. We're not going to change the number of black coaches or owners in the league. But we're going to give this really rich guy a lot of money and have him pay his black friends to come perform for us. That's what it was. And so... I don't see any real structural change that has occurred from the time Jay-Z got involved with Rock Nation and the NFL to now. What's right. actually changed besides blacker halftime shows? Yeah. yeah. And that's the only thing that's gotten blacker. There are no more black yeah. NFL coaches. No more black coaches. No more black, no more black quarterbacks. No more black referees. I don't think I don't think anything has gotten blacker yeah. besides the people that perform. And what's so fun about that halftime performance is the NFL doesn't even pay for that. You pay mm-hmm. for that yourself. So Oh wow. Yeah. These yeah. are fees that you bring in, they get a cut of it, but like they're not even even economically like paying for Beyonce to do that huge stage. Beyonce paid for that and then had to share some revenue the splits there. So it's just like they're not actually letting people have a real slice of the pie or even changing the pie recipe or anything. They're just like, come in, do your dance, and we're going to go back to football. And I've even heard that the NFL, in some instances, has asked halftime show performers to give a portion of all their revenue from mm-hmm. concerts after the halftime show yep. to the NFL. Yep. It's it's wild deals, wild deals. Wild. Well, you know, I do think Rihanna is is very savvy and um, she's proven to be actually incredibly adept at kind of distinguishing herself from her peers, even, you know, executives who are also kind of mentors. We'll see. You know, I often think of a quote from Bell Hooks where she basically said, you know, are you here to destroy the throne? Or do you just basically want to kick the white people out of the throne so you can Mm, sit in it? And that's the predicament of black capitalism. It's still capitalism. So it's going to be a great performance, but will it be radical? We'll have to see. It would be radical if they actually let one of these halftime performers, even Rihanna, get through an entire song. They cut (laughs) these songs to death. Let her do We Found Love, the extended mix. Can we hear a whole verse? Can we? Come on. Come on. Can we, like, give advice to Rihanna like she listens and give her a song that she should perform at the Super Bowl? I mean, I want her to do S&M, uncensored, and ruin ruin CBS's life. It's like, oh, you thought y'all were mad about Janet. 
<laughs> I, similar vein, I would like to see her do Needed Me in a similar, like, yeah. very sexy, very oh. kind of, like, sober. Um, but then I don't want her to sing SOS, even though I think she's going to be pushed to do it. I like that song, but I feel like that was so long yeah. ago. I don't it need was. to see you do yeah. SOS on the stage. I want her to do Rude Boy, and I want all of the <gasps> I Rude Boy dancers Rude Boy. to be NFL stars. Okay. That's what I want. Right. That's what oh I want. God. From Stitcher, that was Vibe Check. It's hosted by Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford. Now, we're going to get into your podcast picks. We're going to start with Sam. Sam, you've recommended Decoder Ring with Willa Paskin. What is it about this show that you like? I love anything pop culture that basically tells me how this thing I used to believe and that I thought was true was actually not quite. And I think I know, but I have no idea, you know? And Willa Paskin does this brilliantly with every episode of her show. It's kind of like a pop culture history show, almost like behind the music energy, but more than that, it feels academic in some really good ways. Like she just goes deep and studies an artifact of popular culture or zeitgeist that we think we know, and then shows us how we actually don't know it at all. And my favorite example of her doing this so brilliantly was her recent episode about method acting. You know, we all think we know what method acting is. You know, if you ask anybody who follows a movie or TV, we could tell you. Turns out you're wrong. It's great. I love it. So check out the show. Okay, let's take a listen. In this clip, Willa Paskin is joined by Isaac Butler, author of The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. For context, The Method was developed by Lee Strasberg. It essentially focuses on psychological techniques that help actors create realistic and captivating performances. But it's evolved a lot since this time. Here's Dakota Ring. If time had stopped at Strasbourg's death, the public's understanding of the method would have been as his. But time never stops. And so the meaning of the method starts to change, thanks to one actor in particular. You talking to me? You talking to me? Right when Strasbourg died, his idea of the method is overtaken by De Niro's. Then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? So... In the 70s, De Niro starts developing this process that involves really extensive research, months of research of all kinds, and then often not breaking character once he's on set. Robert De Niro was affiliated with the actor studio and Lee Strasberg, but the seeds of this process don't come from them. They come from Stella Adler, with whom De Niro studied as a very young man. I always give her credit for being having a big influence on me, It's not about neuroses, it's about the character and about being faithful to the text, the script. And he takes her ideas and pushes them much further than anyone else, probably further than she would have approved of, uh, I, I would guess, but I don't know. And so he does this movie called Bang the Drum Slowly, in which he plays a terminally ill and not particularly bright baseball catcher from Georgia. I always been pretty much of a nobody, though, so I, I guess what I got to do is I, I got to develop brains. 
Robert De Niro um, did not know anything about baseball. So instead, he interviewed a bunch of baseball players. He taught himself how to chew tobacco. He changed his walk. He changed his training regimen so that he would work out like a baseball player. He learned how to practically play baseball. He went to Georgia with a tape recorder and had people say his lines into the tape recorder so he could master the dialect on and on and on and on and on. And he pushes that further and further and further in film after film until we get to Raging Bull. And this is really the, the fulcrum point. I'm going to smack you again. Throw it again. It's enough. Hey. It's enough. Hey. Hard, hard. No, you cut your opening and everything. Raging Bull is about a real life person, Jake LaMotta, and it's based on his memoir. And for that movie, he all but lived with LaMotta. He learned how to be a boxer. LaMotta actually trained him in boxing and he knocked out LaMotta's teeth. He wore these prosthetics to kind of transform how he looked. And, you know, uh, he also refused to break character on set. And you'll he, you'll read interviews with people who worked on that film that were like, he was scary, man. And you called him champ. Famously, that movie is bookended by sequences where you see the retired LaMotta who's kind of gone to seed. You don't understand I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. And De Niro did what I think many of us would love to do for a job, which is that he stopped working out and he ate his way through France and Italy for two months to gain 60 pounds for the role. And it gave him rashes on the inside of his thighs. He developed a snore. He had trouble breathing. He had trouble tying his shoes. It's controversial in the time. Champions of De Niro's like, Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael are like, what is this? This is terrible. This is frightening. This is not acting. This is not real. Like, you shouldn't do this. It's bad, you know? And the film is actually initially a flop, but it wins him Best Actor. And it really catapults him to being thought of as the best living actor. And as a result, it just becomes a hugely influential technique. Meryl Streep, who's definitely not a method actor, does a similar style of transformation for Sophie's Choice, where she learns to speak Polish and German. She loses a bunch of weight. Then she gains it back. She wears false teeth, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And then, you know, Al Pacino really admires what she does in that. And he wants to do that for Scarface and on and on and on and on and on until the point where we get to Daniel Day-Lewis, who's living in a wheelchair for a year or whatever. This was for his Oscar-winning performance in 1989's My Left Foot. And a reporter's like, so is this the method? And Daniel Day-Lewis actually says in that interview, I am not a method actor. I do not ascribe to any particular method. I have a practical problem of trying to realize. And yet the public is so convinced that that's the method that it doesn't matter. That is now a method actor. It's not just the public, though. Here's Zoe Kravitz joking around with Jimmy Fallon about playing Catwoman. I was study cats. I did that. I would, uh, I would dr drink milk out of a bowl. I did that. You did not. I did. You drank milk out of a bowl? Maybe. No. <laughs> I'm method, dude. Uh, me too. <laughs> it's been 40 years since Raging Bull came out, and whole generations have grown up thinking of the method as this particular kind of showy, externalized approach. Even if Daniel Day-Lewis and an actor like Succession's Jeremy Strong, who recently denied being method, know they aren't method in the classic sense, in the effective memory sense, that's become pretty specialized knowledge. And the actor Jig Gyllenhaal touched on part of the reason why in his recent Saturday Night Live monologue. I remember for this movie Nightcrawler, I went to the director and I was like, get ready for me to lose 48 pounds and win the Oscar. For decades, physically transforming oneself for a role has been rewarded. 
with awards and nominations, but also with attention. Extreme preparation dramatically illustrates an actor's commitment while lending itself to late night banter and news items and gossip. One of the reasons why we hear all of these stories about physical transformation and living as the character and wanting to be called Brad all the time, I think it's an easy way of explaining to the public everything that you're doing to prepare for a role. Like, look at how hard I worked. But there are virtues in a less showy kind of preparation. And it's that it's less showy. There's a fine line between serious and self-serious, between committed and overcommitted, between fascinating and ridiculous, between hardworking and press-seeking. As the most headline-garnering method actor around has become Jared Leto, behaving badly for bad movies, there's been a lot more carping about the method, a lot more skepticism about it. Or as the actor Robert Pattinson put it a few years ago. You only ever see people doing the method when they're playing an the irony here is that even as the common understanding of the method has gotten so mangled, even as it's transformed from an internal psychological technique to an external research-intensive technique to a seemingly attention-garnering technique even some actors want to disavow, the original method and the system from which it sprang are still all around us. Think of the method like a glacier, a giant force that once crept down from the polar ice caps and then retreated, shrinking more and more each year. But not before carving out the very landscape we still live in. A world where actors want to seem real. And we want them to. Most of the time when you want to watch a movie, don't you want to really believe that that person is the character? Don't you want to get lost in it? We live with the taste the method created. And it's really true. From Slate, that was Dakota Ring. It's hosted and written by Willa Paskin. That episode was produced by Elizabeth Nakano. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I'm, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm going to turn to you, Saeed, for our next podcast. You've recommended a classic, Death, Sex, and Money, hosted by Anna Sale. What do you like about this show? Oh, gosh. I mean, you're right. The show is a classic. This has come up throughout uh, the conversation we've been having, but I really value the art of conversation, of dialogue, where people use it not just to talk about an interesting topic, but to set us free. You know what I mean? And and to kind of go to the difficult places, to the, the really tight knots and work them out, you know, not just to provide entertainment, but to help us all learn how to live, you know, with more nuance and compassion. And I just think Anna Sale is so good, not just at 
talking and interviewing people about difficult, often taboo subjects, but doing so in an intelligently compassionate way, you know? And I just I just think it's so difficult because, you know, often the the point in the conversation or the topic where I think a lot of us understandably would want to pull back, ease up, you know what I mean? Because we're like kind of scared. I think she that's the moment where she shines. And it's not extractive or predatory you know she's not a cruel kind of gotcha interviewer instead it's just like you can almost it's like you can almost kind of feel her kind of like holding the the guest's hand if that makes sense um Mm -hmm. and kind of being like we're gonna Mm -hmm. we're gonna walk through this canyon together and and i just i just really admire it And there's one recent episode that specifically stood out to you, and it, it's difficult. So just a warning for listeners to take care as we get into the details, because this piece specifically discusses suicide. I'm just wondering if you can tell me a bit about why you chose this episode. I think this episode just kind of epitomizes, you know, everything I just said in that uh, she interviews a man named Terry Gabler about his husband. And the title of the episode is Finding Meaning After My Husband's public death. Terry's husband, David Buckle, was a longtime environmental and climate activist who in 2018 doused himself in gasoline and and set himself on fire to draw attention to complacency about the climate crisis. And wow, you know, that is an incredibly uh, heartbreaking, devastating incident in, in the life of this family. And but also an example of of the nuance of the conversation do we even consider this suicide you know like do we how do we respect um this person's wishes you know in terms of how we talk about this and so i was just blown away by the compassion and insight uh, revealed by, you know, a topic that I think understandably many of us would go, whoa, there is no way I'm trying to do this on the record. You know what I mean? This is this is just too hard. Well, let's take a listen now with more of that story. Here's death, sex and money. On Earth Day this year, another climate activist named Wynne Bruce lit himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court. Bruce was a Buddhist, and after his death, a friend of his, Kriti Konko, a climate scientist and Buddhist priest who knew Bruce, tweeted, Bruce's death is a deeply fearless act of compassion to bring attention to climate crisis. I am so moved. She also said it would have been her moral obligation to try to stop Bruce's death if she had known about it. Terry Kelber told me that after the death of his husband, he felt similar tensions. There was deep grief and also a desire to be sensitive to David's purpose, even as he planned for his funeral. I didn't want to cremate him because that's using fossil fuels. and (laughs) So where to bury him? And I wanted to do it in a natural setting because I like this idea of he becoming compost to the world. And so we, you know, we did that in the first week. And it was very private. And then it was kind of so amazing how the, a community came forward of people, many people I didn't know, who turned the spot where David had done this into this kind of sacred memory place, bringing flowers and notes and gifts and 
And I went to it every day. I would go there every day. Oh, you did. I still go there a lot. Oh. And um Yeah. And then uh and this went on for to the end of May, I guess. And then the parks department contacted me and said, you know, we can't have this be a permit memorial site because that's not what parks are about. And so we're going to have to clear this away at some point. And we want to work with you to figure out how to do that. And I had a really, really close friend, David and I did. She became one of my journey guides. And she flew out and, and helped us bury him. Because we're not we're not part of any kind of organized religion, and although we are spiritual and and uh, she's very much that way, and we completely buried him. Our the small group of close friends. Hmm. Tara, you used the word the term journey guide. Mm-hmm. How did you come to start using that term, and and? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's like the first year, I feel like the first year I just, it's like I just walked through the year. And then when his second anniversary came up, I remember saying, I want this coming year, I want to figure out how to move on. And I don't, I'm not clear how to do it. And as I thought more about it, I thought, and I'm going to need help doing that. So I just started thinking about asking people to play this role with me. I've wondered, um, is it difficult for you to read kind of the latest headlines about the climate crisis and statistics on how things are continuing to get worse? Oh my God, yeah, no, it is. I kind of, I'm almost, I feel like I'm almost a little detached. I look at it and just shake my head. I, I, we seem to be incapable as a society, as a world to do what needs to be done. It's like we're marching, we're a bunch of lemmings marching to the cliff we're gonna all fall off of. I, I kind of am starting to see this as we're a society that's all built upon this idea that all we, it's all about just taking for us. Whatever we need, we take. And, that, and we've done that to the earth. And we do that to each other. I, I don't know what else to do. I do feel as if, you know, David's, David's call to action was really, in some ways, spoke directly to this, this idea that change is going to happen when we each individually commit ourselves to it. When you're holding at once that you wish David had not taken his life and also that David took his life um, with a message that he hoped would be meaningful, um, just how do you carry that mm. tension? So, you know, I, firm, I, I think he was really misguided by thinking that his act 
would have the kind of, you know, I think, you know, would wake people up. Um, when, when Bruce, who set himself on fire in front of the Supreme Court, when he did that, I, my thought was, and I feel this about David, which was, it is such a waste for them to have done this. That the belief that our media will even want to pay attention to what they want to say is wrong. Our media sensationalizes the act as not at all interested in the message. And then they move on. He was a great writer. And I was encouraging him to write. Why don't you write about this? I, but somehow I think he, I don't know. He just didn't want to do that. And um, yeah, it's funny. I was thinking with when Bruce that it would have had so much more impact if he had gotten a hundred other Buddhists to chain themselves and circle the Supreme Court. That would have lived on for days. Hmm. They would have been able to get their message out. You know, I don't know. I'm just, I'm so, I, 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 that's the piece to the degree I'm, I get angry. It's around that. It's like, what were you thinking? You are so smart, David, and you thought that this would make a difference. And I don't really think it does. I think it's being in the fight that makes a difference. Hmm. Not checking out. Over the last three years, Terry has collected four journey guides. He says they've helped him to continue to move forward with his life and to process the difficult feelings around David's death. From WNYC, that was Death, Sex, and Money. It's hosted by Anna Sale. That episode was produced by Zoe Azule. Now I'm going to turn it over to Zach. You recommended the podcast Family Ghosts. It's a favorite of ours as well. It's a documentary storytelling podcast that dives deep into family history. And recently, your boyfriend Craig had his work featured on the show. Can you tell us a bit about the family story that he dives into? Oh, I'd love to. And it's so fun to be able to talk about your boyfriend on a podcast about his podcast. It's kind of like self-indulgent, but maybe like the future of storytelling. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so he did this really wonderful series that I got to, you know, take a back seat to. And what I mean by that is I got to watch him work, which is a really beautiful thing to do as a journalist, a producer who works so much out in the world, but never at home. And, you know, his series with Family Ghosts is part of this larger series that that show does where they ask people to dive into the complicated stories of their own families and kind of use them as like ground zero of 
diving into a deeper question in your life. And, you know, through our relationship, which spans many years now, I've heard so much about his family being ex-Mormon. And something really interesting that happened to him is that he is the third openly gay person in his family, but the only one that has survived. Mm. And, you know, those have been really intimate conversations with us. But to see him create this narrative series with these really amazing producers that uses that story of himself and his family to tell a bigger story of Mormonism, culture, loss, and memory was just profound. And I also got to like secretly produce on it, which I got caught doing one day, like looking at scripts. Um, But (laughs) it was nice to just like watch his brilliance and like see him enter the format. And I think it just shows what podcasting does these days. It's a a space for all of us to have a voice um, and to really try out our own stories, which I think is really, really exciting. All right. Let's hear a clip now from Family Ghosts. It would be a lie to say that I knew my uncles well while I was growing up. Part of our distance was simple geography. I grew up in Ohio while they lived in and around Utah. But the sad truth is that I didn't really want to know them when I was younger. Most of what I know about them now, I've learned as an adult. I had more interactions with Larry, my mother's younger brother, and like many a gay man, his mother's favorite. I remember him deep frying wontons while wearing a white polo shirt gossiping with my grandma in the kitchen. I remember sitting in a steakhouse, hearing him describe the movie Moulin Rouge to my cousins. I went home and secretly downloaded the album on LimeWire, hating myself for how much I loved the album's cover of DeBarge's Rhythm of the Night. I remember his voice, how silky and soft it was. I remember getting into his car and being scandalized by the latent smell of his cigarettes. I knew he was not like the rest of my Mormon family, but what he actually was, was a mystery. Even as a child, I could tell that the version of him that showed up to our family events was less than 50% of who he really was. I do not know if he thought he'd be rejected, or if he felt the need to protect our tender Mormon sensibilities from his queer reality. I imagine it was a little of both, an odd protective impulse in reverse, that I sometimes feel around my own family now. But I knew there was more to him, and I didn't think I was supposed to want to know about it. My memories of Uncle Brent are sparser. He was born in Blackfoot, Idaho in 1943, the youngest of 11 children and also his mother's undeniable favorite. I call him Uncle Brent, but he was actually my great-uncle Brent, the youngest brother of my grandmother. The first time I met Brent, I was nine or ten. My parents would often ship us from Ohio for an extended summer stay with our grandparents in Salt Lake City. I remember Uncle Brent entering my grandmother's house through the back door. I had never seen him before and thought he might be breaking in. But in reality, he had simply walked around the property to inspect my grandma's garden. Before even saying hello to my grandma, Brent declared, Your roses are looking thirsty. This is what I remember most about Uncle Brent. Rarely was there an interaction without some sort of critique, veiled or overt. He had a way of viewing the world in which those around him were always doing something wrong, somehow failing to meet his lofty expectations. 
He was the perpetual victim of our shortcomings. According to family whisperings, Uncle Brent had decided at some point to live a celibate life as a fully active Mormon. This meant he would not have considered himself to be gay, but instead would have viewed his homosexuality as a trial of the flesh, a condition he would have to endure for this life only, something that would disappear when he died and arrived in heaven. Most likely, he would have referred to himself as same-sex attracted, eschewing any connection to gay identity. I had pieced together that they were gay over time, following little hints I'd gathered by eavesdropping as other family members talked about them behind their backs, describing Uncle Brent as light in the loafers and a friend of Dorothy. A few years later, I heard my older brothers making fun of Larry by calling him a pansy. When I asked my mom to explain what they meant, she turned to me and in a very nonchalant way said, Craig, your Uncle Larry's gay. Taken together, these memories reveal how consequential these signals about my uncle's sexuality were for me. Finally, I had a phrase to describe it all. A friend of Dorothy. Pansy. Pocahontas boy. They all meant the same thing. We were all being charged with the same crime. We all didn't belong in the same way. And they called it being gay. As soon as I heard the word gay, I knew that this thing my family whispered about was the same thing I was beginning to feel in me. Better said, it was the thing I had always felt. And that was horrifying. Not because my family thought my uncles were sinful, or because the Book of Mormon says gay people are bad, which, for the record, it doesn't. It was horrifying because they spoke of them as pitiful, hopeless, in a very specific way. As though unable to possess the same level of love and happiness that they, the non-gay, possessed. They revealed that my uncles were gay with the same sort of whispered shame that they might use to tell you that someone had been diagnosed with an embarrassing disease. Always a euphemism. Always the brunt of a joke. And so, instead of becoming role models I sought to emulate, their lives served as blueprints of what I hoped to avoid. I was afraid of the very people who were most like me. How I wish this story was one in which I knew my uncles for who they were, told them who I am, and we rode off into the sunset, exchanging stories and wisdom in queer intergenerational bliss. But that's not our story. I never came out to them, and they never explicitly told me they were gay. By the time I could have told them, they were gone. From Walt FM and PRX, that was Family Ghosts. It's hosted by Sam Dingman. We heard a clip from the series Pioneer Stock, which features Craig Mangum. And that's it. That was everyone's podcast picks. Thank you all for joining me today. It has been a delight having you here. Oh my goodness, of course. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. 
That was Sam Sanders, Saeed Jones, and Zach Stafford, the hosts of Vibe Check. You can find their podcast on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to hear more from the podcast we featured today, and I'd highly recommend you do because they're all fantastic, head to our website. There, we post links and details for each of the shows. You can go to cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Kelsey Cueva, Julian Uzielli, Oliver Thompson, and Lauren Donnelly, with technical support from Lauda Antonelli. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.